I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's episode has been sponsored by Serial Box. Serial Box delivers addictive book content in short listen or read installments designed to fit into today's fast-paced mobile lifestyle. Switch between listening and reading with a single click, picking up right where you left off. Learn more at SerialBox.com, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com. I'm here today with Linda Cohen-Loigman, the author of The Two-Family House and The Wartime Sisters. Linda was a trust and estates lawyer before raising her children with her husband in the suburbs of New York. A Harvard College and Columbia Law School graduate, Linda is originally from Longmeadow, Massachusetts, near where The Wartime Sisters took place. So welcome, Linda. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. (laughs) So Linda and I are both sitting here in the middle of winter with colds, so bear with us. Yes, we're a little (laughs) sniffly, but you won't mind. Yeah. (laughs) At least we can't get you sick from the radio or whatever. (laughs) So can you tell listeners what the Wartime Sisters is about? Yes, I will. It's always a little bit this... Describing this book is a little bit more difficult than with my first book because, in a way, it's it's almost two different things. So it's a family story, first and foremost, and it's about two sisters who grow up in Brooklyn, and they are opposites. They don't get along. Their parents sort of contribute to the rift that develops between them, and they become estranged, and then they are joined back again together at the Springfield Armory at the start of World War II. So it's also a home front story. So it's kind of those two different things. I think of it as a family story first, and that's partly because of the way it came about, which I know we'll talk about, I'm sure. But it also really does involve that greater sisterhood of women who worked at the Springfield Armory during the start of World War II. Well, let's just go right there. (laughs) (laughs) How how did the story come about? Oh, well... So my mom grew up in Brooklyn, which, and I used that sort of setting for my first book, The Two-Family House. But she moved to Springfield when she was 18. And she actually stayed behind her family for a few months because she was finishing high school. So when I went to write my second novel, I wanted to write another family story. I wanted to write about that sort of transition of, of a family from a big city to a smaller city. And I wanted to write about somebody being left behind. And I kind of had this theme also of sort of the roles of childhood that were assigned when we're young and trying to break free from them. And can you ever sort of escape from them if you're the smart one, you're the pretty one, you're the lazy one, you're the flaky one, whatever it is, can you ever sort of escape from them? So that was my starting point for the book. And I had this idea that I was going to have one character once we got to Springfield, when the family moved, I was going to have one character who was going to be there, Mm -hmm. and she was going to have this backstory of working at the Springfield Armory during World War II. And the Armory, a lot of people, I'm sure, who are listening have never heard of it, (laughs) because I grew up near it, and I had really didn't know anything about it. But it was started, like, by George Washington. I mean, he commissioned it to, to have an arms factory in Springfield after the Revolutionary War. And so it has this very long history. And it's just a fascinating place. And during World War II, of course, as we all know, with the Rosie the Riveter stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. so many women worked in in the defense plants. And I started researching the army. I thought I knew what was going to happen. And I thought I I was just going to have this character. I just wanted to know what job she would have. I was going to do like a little bit of research. That was going to be it. And then I started listening to these recorded interviews that someone had the great sense to record of women and men who had worked and lived there during World War II. And when I started listening to them, I got so caught up in them. And it seemed like such a fascinating place that I decided to set the book there and move the whole time period of my story back 20 years. So I was originally going to write this story in the 1960s, the early 60s when my mom moved, mm-hmm. and I decided to make it set at that World War II time period. 
That's awesome. So that's how it came about. It, it was a, the characters really came first. Mm-hmm. And their conflict and all of that came first. And then the sisterhood of the woman at the armory kind of was layered. So in some of the audio recordings, did you hear about how to actually assemble the gun parts? So, I mean, it yeah. was so detailed. I was like, <laughs> this is amazing. How does she know okay. this? Like, where is she even reading this? That was actually funny because, well, so the the interviews had women from all different, who had all different jobs and mm-hmm. all different sort of positions at the Army. That was what was so fascinating. So there was an interview with a woman who had put together triggers, just sort of sitting at a table, putting all the trigger parts together. And that is one of the jobs that I gave one of my characters, Millie. Right. One of yep. the sisters has that job. And there were there was a woman who was an officer's wife who, who gave an interview and a teenager who had lived there, who was the daughter of an officer, somebody who took photographs for the Army newsletter, all different kinds of jobs. But that, knowing exactly what to do to put together triggers, I actually, I think I'm just like behind the times. I didn't realize, I, I emailed someone I went to high school with who I knew had gone to military school for college. And I was asking him about the M1 Grand, the gun. And I've never... Before I went to the Army, I had never held a gun in my life. I'm really afraid of guns. I'm not like— I've never into, even heard of an know. M1 Grand, right. so yes. I'm and, probably and with a you. Gar- Garand. Oh, so Garand. So it's John Garand. Oh, so okay. that was well, the see. rifle that all the troops used during World War II, and that was the rifle that they made at the Army. But I didn't know anything about them. He, and he said to me, he just emailed me back, and he said, you can watch— there's lots of videos on YouTube. You can watch how to put it together. And of course— I'm so like yeah, behind right. that I didn't even realize that. So I was watching these videos on YouTube over and over and over and over again to try to get the language down of the different parts and researching the parts and just just to write one paragraph right. of how you take it apart and wow. put it back together. But one at one point I was on the train going to Boston to visit my daughter <laughs> and I was watching a video of how to strip a gun on the train and I thought, oh my God, they're going to like think that I'm... <laughs> Like a crazed, like that I'm, I don't know, like the, the a murderer or something. I don't know. I'm sure you're getting like the weirdest ads now. Yes, like you get strange <laughs> ads. Your search history. Whenever you're a writer, your search history becomes very strange because you just think of things and you you Google them and, and it just gets crazy. That would be so. a good idea to do like an essay or a book about the people's search history. Search history for novelists. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. funny. Well, it maybe somebody fun. did it already. Yeah. But. I mean, I, I know like people always talk about how they research different poisons and things. Yeah, like, that's true. It would be fun. <laughs> so in the book, I loved how you structured all your characters. They became just so real for me. And I love the scene between Millie, who's the younger sister, and her dad when she was having all these doubts about her boyfriend. And she asked her dad his opinion. He says, Ah, Mamala, I'm flattered that you want your father's opinion, but believe me when I tell you, you're asking the wrong person. And then he says, When it comes to love, nothing good comes of asking for someone else's opinion. Love is something you have to decide for yourself, which is so true. But I feel like we've all been in the situation where, like, I feel like if you have to ask, it means something's missing, right? Do you ever feel like that? I completely agree. I think, yeah. I think it's difficult, you know, now I have a daughter who's 20. So, you know, like she's had boyfriends and things and and she'll talk to me about things. But that's kind of different because she's so young. But when you start talking to adults, you know, when we were, well, I guess she's not that young. But but, but when we were, I don't know, when we were in our late 20s and early 30s and friends of mine were getting married and stuff, it's hard to know what to say to people when mm-hmm. they ask you about their relationships. Because if you really like the person, it's easy. Mm-hmm. If you feel like it's all going to work out, it's easy. But when you have reservations, it's really difficult to say to someone that you have serious reservations about the person that they're in a relationship with. Like, I mean, I guess it depends on how close you are to the friend, but I'm not one for confrontation. I'm a very yeah. non-confrontational person. So I think it's it's a really tough thing to do that. 
I remember my dad told me once that a friend of his had asked him when they were in, I don't know, college a really long time ago, and he was friends with both of them. I don't know. They asked him, and he said, oh, I think this is a terrible idea. This is, like, a huge (laughs) mistake. And they ended up getting married and then completely cut him out. And then eventually they broke up. But it didn't matter because by the time they broke up— the friendships had been destroyed. Yeah. So it's like it doesn't even matter if you're right. You just can't right. say that stuff. It's real. And it's, especially as a parent, it's hard. Yeah. And it's as hard. a parent, it's true. Because, I mean, again, my kids are too young. But I do have friends who, like, were with someone and then they broke up. Mm-hmm. And then they ended up marrying them. Mm-hmm. That's happened yes, with a couple I've friends. Had, I've had and friends. Then, but the family, you know, the family might not have forgiven mm-hmm. the spouse during the breakup period and might have said things to the person yes. during the breakup period. And then you can't take back all those things you say when the people it's get back so together true. again. It's so true. So it it's a difficult, it's a really difficult thing. I'm not one to ask. I never asked anyone's opinions, but I'm just, I don't know. I don't ask anyone's opinions if I go shopping either. Like if I really need to get something, if I need to get a dress for a certain occasion. Yeah. I don't want to go with anyone. I only want my own opinion. Other people's opinions just get in my head and oh. and get me confused. And I think, not that a dress is as serious as love, but I, I feel that way. I rely on my own counsel, I think, I in like, certain parts of my life. I get dressed in the morning and I'm like asking my five-year-old daughter, I'm like, does this look okay? <laughs> and this morning she was like, I do not like that dress. So I changed. <laughs> so I I like am sending pictures from dressing rooms. That's I am not, so I, need, I need to take That's a page so out of your funny. book. Well, for it, I mean, if it's just getting dressed for the day, I might ask, but not, but you know, like <laughs> no, if, know you, if you there's mean. like a debt, yeah. like something you need it for and it's a big deal, I don't know. Do you ask people about your writing? Like when you're in the middle of a draft, do you send it out? Do you ask for people's advice so, on it? So yes or? and no. So I feel like I have to get to a certain point with it where it makes sense and the person can see what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I think if you just start sending out too early, mm-hmm. then again, people can get in your head and kind of confuse you and maybe send you down the wrong path. I think you'd really need to know where you are in your story first. And for how- me, that I, I really need to know exactly. And there's, I just call it like a point of critical mass. I get to a point of critical mass where it's shaped. I know what it is. I won't be swayed from it. And that's the story. Of course, I will take criticism and suggestions about the different mm-hmm. different scenes, things that should be cut, whatever it is. But the story has to get to a certain point. And do you have it all mapped out? You have it outlined? Like, is it written or is it just in your head it's that way? It's in my head. <laughs> I'm not. Someone the other, yesterday, I did an interview and I was asked if I use a whiteboard and and index cards and all this. I don't use any of those things. None of those things. It's just all in my head, which is bad because my head it's is bad. just, it's just like kind of constantly churning <laughs> about things. I mean, well, I don't know. It's just, it's just the way that I do it. I can't. I will write down lists of scenes. Okay. And that's when I get to a certain point in the book, I kind of know how the next 10 scenes will go, the next 10 chapters, whatever it is. Maybe it's a chapter or maybe it's just a scene and there might be more than one scene in a chapter. And then I'll make a list of what is going to happen next. But I don't ever really outline the whole thing. So how did you get into this? You were a lawyer. (laughs) You wrote your first book how many years ago? It came out in 2016, but I had worked on it. I was probably working on it since... Oh, a while. 2010. Yeah, 2010. <laughs> 2010. Yeah, oh my 2010. Yeah. And what made you start writing? Did you always want to write? Did it something you loved or did you just- I loved it, but I never really did it. You know, uh-huh. it was like one of those things where theoretically yeah. I would have liked to have been a writer, but I grew up, 
I grew up just in a very, like, middle-class family and in Western Massachusetts. I didn't know any writers. Mm-hmm. My mom was very practical. So her thought was, you have to do something where you can support yourself because we're not going to be able to support you. Mm-hmm. You have to do it yourself. And you should be a doctor, a lawyer, or, like, an engineer. And so, of course, I wasn't going to be an engineer, and I wasn't going to be a doctor, so that sort of left lawyer. <laughs> so, And lawyers sort of make sense for a lot of people. I think there are a lot of English majors who become lawyers, mm-hmm. and they're frustrated because reading and writing is your thing, so you think you're going to use those skills. And you do, yep. but it's just to what end? You know, what are you reading and what are you writing? It's not the th- It's not a novel. It's not a Victorian novel like I wanted to be reading. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, the tax code or whatever it is. And I didn't. I really didn't think that being a writer was anything practical that I could make a living at. So mm-hmm. it wasn't anything that I ever thought about pursuing. But I practiced for eight years. I had my daughter. We moved out of the city. I worked part-time a little bit. I was a legal recruiter for a little bit. And I just had this story in my head. The Two Family House was a story I had since my daughter was a baby huh. in my head, floating in there. And I used to talk to people about it and kind of tell the story. So mm-hmm. it was sort of like an oral kind of mm-hmm. like story that I would tell. And when I would walk with my friends in the mornings, I would tell them the story. And then... My mom passed away, and then I turned 40, and it was all these big changes in my life, and I knew that I just had to start writing. Mm -hmm. It was just kind of eating at me. Mm -hmm. So I took a class, started taking a class at Sarah Lawrence, and that was how I got started. And I took that class for almost six years, for like five and a half years. Wow. And I wrote the whole book in that class. And then there was a seminar, and I got an agent at the seminar, which was complete luck, and she sold the book. And I don't know, it was really lucky, really, really lucky how it all happened after the book was written. Lucky, but it was like six to ten years of hard work. It was. I mean, it, it was. Like, it you just know. happens. Yes, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Well, I, you know, there are so, yeah, so many novelists, and it's so, there's so many novelists who write so many books, and then their seventh or eighth book becomes the New York Times bestseller, right. and they say, like, I'm an overnight success after, right. I'm an overnight success with my eighth book, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> Did you have doubts or anything? I've been hearing a lot about, like, second book doubt. Like, there was- second book doubt is real, yeah. The second book is hard. I... For me, I had started working on this other book when my agent was trying to sell the first book. I started working on a second book, and I was really excited about it. And I talked to her about it and showed her some of it, and she liked it. But she said, Linda, this can't be your second book because it was so kind of different from the first book. And she told me this after, I guess she had just sold the book. And she said, your readers will want blah, blah, blah. And I said, I don't have any readers. (laughs) What are you talking about? She said, no, you will. And it was kind of... As soon as it came out of her mouth, as soon as she said it, I knew she was right. Mm. Because I was kind of just going down a completely different path. And that was really difficult. So that, I kind of got into a point where I didn't write for a little while. Because, first of all, I was really excited and nervous about the the publisher buying my first book. And then my second book, I was just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. What should I do? What should I do? You know, so I had this like 100 pages. I put it away and I was trying to come up with this next story. And then I decided I wanted to write another family story. And that's when the sisters from the wartime sisters started brewing in my head. But getting to that point took me a little while. Do you have a a sister? I don't have a sister, no. And someone actually recently pointed out to me that it's really good that I don't have a sister because (laughs) if I did, she would think I was writing about her. You'd be in huge trouble. (laughs) Yeah. There was another great moment in the book that I thought was really beautifully written when Millie is sort of debating befriending someone when she's in her armory life. You wrote, Millie had spent her first few months in Springfield trying to fit into her sister's life. She had folded herself up like a torn scrap of paper, end over end, making herself small. She had tiptoed and whispered and confined herself to corners, all the while taking up as little space as possible. But she was done with all that. It was time for a change. 
I felt like this was like confessions of a summer house guest. <laughs> it's like when you try to like take yeah. up less physical space in the world, that feeling like where did you sort of summon that image from? I don't know. I don't know. I really love that part too. I, I'm happy that you like, makes me happy that you picked that passage because I do love that passage also. But I think, I think that happens a lot. I think a summer house guest is a, is a classic example, but I think it happens in marriages. Mm. I think it happens as a mother. Sometimes you're just, it happens whenever you kind of give up your own needs for someone else's. Yep. And at some points in your life, that's okay to do, and mm-hmm. that's appropriate to do, and then at some points it's not. And so in this case, you know, she was sort of throwing herself at her sister's mercy for a place to stay, yep. but there comes a time, you know, when she yep. realized she had to make her own life too, and she couldn't not have any friends or not, mm-hmm. you know, live a more fulfilling life just because her sister wanted to sort of have her be seen and not heard from or whatever it was. I sent copies of the book to my mother and my grandmother because we all like love to read and I knew they would like this book, which they did. And my mother was like, you know, I really just wanted to tell Millie to like get on with it. Like (laughs) stop worrying so much about her sister. Like what's the holdup? Yeah. (laughs) I guess it's just because she's living, you know, when you're living with someone, that's the holdup. Yeah. No, of course. Of course. It's a power struggle. You know, it's a power struggle. That's why I think that happens in marriage sometimes. And with motherhood, I just think that, I, I don't know. I th- I guess I felt that way sometimes as a mother that, not that I was doing that because my children were wanting me to. Mm-hmm. They didn't even know. They were little. But you do kind of give up your own needs sometimes. And self-care just takes like a huge backseat and you're just like living your life for your kids, at, you know, at certain ages. Well, you have four children. Yes. I don't have to tell you. No, I'm like, like uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's hard. It's hard. <laughs> there was a day where I was like, I can't remember the last time I sat down to eat. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it was it's just like, yeah. um, it's just one of those things. Like, yeah. but the kids, you know. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Absolutely. I mean, that's like a tiny example, but. Yeah. Oh, this great expression you have in the book. So there was this phone call that you recount um, between Ruth, the, the older sister, and her dad when she's urging him, you know, to be careful while he's driving. And he says, because it was late at night, he says, oh, I never sleep anymore. And then he says, small children don't let you sleep. Big children don't let you rest, which was great. I was like, I feel yeah, like I need to expression. put that on the board. <laughs> I had not, I had not heard that before. Well, it's it's kind of a variation on little children, little problems, big children, big problems. That it's I've a heard. Var- it's a variation on that. I feel but like, but this is this is yeah, different. it's a little bit different. It's yeah. different because it's yeah. sort of what's required of you. Yeah, <laughs> it's the the stakes are higher. The older they get, the stakes are higher, and their pain becomes more real and more relatable. Yeah, and you can't control it. It's you terrible. Know, it, it's. <laughs> It is. I mean, now, so I have a 16-year-old and a 20-year-old, and I remember very well when they were babies and when they were little. And, you know, when they're little, you don't sleep, and they are little problems. And then when they're older, there's another expression that my mother-in-law always says, which is another good one, which is, you're only as happy as your least happy child. And I think that's true. It's not true for everyone, because there are some people who are really able to kind of take their role, their motherhood role, and separate it. You know, there are people who can compartmentalize it. I'm not friends with any of those people. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. That's just like, you know, I'm not. I I have my friends and I from, so I live up in Westchester, and I was so lucky when I moved there because my daughter started preschool at age two, and I met this wonderful group of women. And there are like three or four of us, and, and we always say, we're the mothers. Like, there are two kinds of mothers. This is what we used to say. There are many kinds of mothers. But yeah, what we but, used to yeah. say was there are two kinds of mothers. There are the one. So you're you're somebody's house, and it's a group play date, and the mothers are kind of in one place, and the kids are in the other, right? Mm-hmm. And you hear a scream. 
They're the mothers who run because they think their children are being hurt. And then there are the mothers who run in and say to their child, what did you do? (laughs) And sort of like assume the worst and like are just completely like fixated on making sure that their children are going to be nice people. Uh Like you're going to be nice if I have to knock it out, knock all the meanness out of you and you have to, you know, whatever. And we were always the ones that ran in and said, what did you do? So those are my people. So the the people who can compartmentalize (laughs) are, it's like a foreign thing to me, but I know there are people who can do it. And I think it's a really healthy thing. I do too. I wish I I could do it. It sounds great. I wish I could. (laughs) I know, I wish I could. But I also think there's the thing about in terms of the kids, the least happy kid, it's like they always know how to take turns. Like as soon as I get someone on a like better footing, like as soon as one of them is like in a good place, you know, it's like when you're, you know, I'm, I'm envisioning, I'm doing this with my finger, which no one can see, but like, but the, you know those <laughs> magicians who balance a, pl- a spinning plate on a stick? Yes. So it's like once I get one kid swirling perfectly on the stick and I hand off the stick to focus on the next one, then of course the plate like plate breaks. Starts to so fall. I can't, it's like I can't. Well, with four, it has to be Anyway. Really complicated. No, it's I mean, too. I mean, it's still like this balance. Yes, anyway. but just the law of numbers. Yes. <laughs> just mean that it's harder with four than with two. I'm actually even only talking about my older kids, to be perfectly honest at this point. I mean, because my little kids. The little ones, yeah. You know, they're, they're like, you know, Yeah, they're still too little. You know, the dog is sitting the wrong way yeah. on the bed. That's like a big deal. I think it's just that the older they get, the more you can relate to their pain. Yeah. It becomes more adult. It becomes more real. Mm-hmm. And you can't, they... They have to figure out their own things, yeah. you know. Resilience is the most important lesson to teach them. Yeah. It just is. So it's disappointments are so hard, but they do learn from them, and I don't know. And I feel like that's one of the themes of your book is sort of rebounding, getting yeah. through stuff, yeah. like figuring out how to, you know, take what life is throwing your way and make something of it. I mean, they go through a lot of, they go through a lot of stuff they in your do. book. They do. They so. go through a lot. And I think it's also you can't hold these grudges, you know, like with siblings or whatever it is. You know, you've wronged someone in the past, but you can't blame your relative. You can't blame your mother for all your problems. You can't, you know, you yeah. can't blame people. I try to explain it when I my kids will say, like, why? You didn't like being a lawyer, like, but your mom wanted you to be a lawyer. But I don't blame my mother. It's not like my mother forced me to be a lawyer. Right. I just, I wasn't sophisticated enough to figure out that I didn't have to be a lawyer. And that right. was kind of on me. You know, if I had really been mm-hmm. kind of more aware and it was kind of a lazy decision, mm-hmm. you know, to go to law school. It was lazy. Oh, well. You know, it was easy because you're in school and then you just go to more school. So if I had kind of taken the reins and said, you know what, I'm going to do something else and I'm going to research it and I'm going to figure out what it is, then it would have been a different path. So you can't, you know, you at some point you just you have to just kind of take responsibility for all the things that happen to you. That's so true. it's tough. And are you working on another book now? I am working on another book. So that book that was my second book that is not my second book, Yep. I have kind of changed it a lot okay. <laughs> and added a different character, and that's going to be my third book. So I'm really, really excited about it. Awesome. I'm not quite ready to really talk about it too much, but in a way, it's an immigrant story. It's set in the early 1900s, so it's even earlier than, mm-hmm. than this book. And it follows two Italian immigrants and an Eastern European immigrant, and they all end up in Boston's North End. Huh. So, yeah, it sounds like it's so different from the first two books, but it's actually, it's it's really all about relationships again. There is a pair of warring sisters who don't get along. So it has, it. Ha- I think that the people who liked my first two books will really like 
this one too. Awesome. I don't know. I'm having a lot of fun writing it. Except now I'm like having to research. Research takes you in all these crazy ways. So now I just like was reading a book about the Russian Revolution because <laughs> I'm trying to figure out all of the reasons for why my Eastern European immigrant is leaving and how right. he's going to get to the North End and all these things. And so it's requiring me to have an understanding of the Russian Revolution or the pre, you know, yeah. sort of the early stages of it. And, and that's not really anything I've ever learned about before. So That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you have any advice to aspiring writers? I think you just have to write. I mean, I, I think having a community is really important. I felt like a writer when I started my class. Mm-hmm. I think you need other people to bounce things off of. And I know it goes back to that question, do I show people my stuff but even if you're not showing people your stuff, just even to talk about the whole process with, it's important to have people to commiserate with and other people who understand what it is to go through that process and to want to put a story on paper. So I would say definitely take a class, definitely, or find a writer's group, find some people who are doing the same thing that you're doing. And try to think of yourself as a writer because if you don't think of yourself that way and sort of legitimize what you're doing, then I think it's really hard for other people to think of you that way too. So Excellent advice. That was a tough thing for me to start calling myself a writer. Well, I'll call you a writer. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> no, because you know, you have that imposter syndrome all the yes. time, or I did. So now that my second book is out, I'm like, finally, like, I guess I'm a writer. I can I can say I am. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I think it's okay. I think at this okay. point, it's okay. It's okay. Well, thank you so much for spending time Thanks on Monster Have Time Tree Books. I feel like I'm going to show up and like crash one of your your friend group nights because you should. Your friend group sounds awesome. <laughs> I feel like I can totally you relate. Should. <laughs> you should anyway. come. <laughs> Bye. Thanks. Today's episode was sponsored by Serial Box, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com, SerialBox.com, delivering addictive book content in short listen or read installments. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Mm-hmm.